well, on a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a small life-saving station. Uh, the building was primitive, kind of outdated, and there was just one boat. But the members of the life-saving station were committed and kept a constant watch over the sea. When a ship went down, they unselfishly went out to rescue people day or night. They were there. Whatever was going on, they were there to save the lost. Because so many lives were saved by that small station, it became well known. It actually became famous. As a result, many people wanted to associate with the station to give their time and their talent and their money to support uh, the important work. New boats were bought, new crews were recruited, and a formal training session was offered to equip people. As the membership in this life-saving station grew, some of the members became unhappy that the building was so primitive and the equipment was kind of outdated. They wanted a better place to welcome survivors when they pulled them from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots with nice, comfortable beds, and they put furniture in the enlarged, newly decorated building. Uh, The life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members. They met regularly, and when they did, it was apparent that they loved one another. Uh, They greeted each other, they hugged each other, they shared with one another the events of their life that had happened that week. But a few members were now interested, were not now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions. So they hired lifeboat crews to do this for them. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in to the life-saving station, excuse me, boatloads of cold, wet, dirty, half-drowned people. Some of them had black skin. Some of them had yellow skin. Some of them spoke English. Some could hardly speak at all. Some were first-class cabin passengers on the ship, and some were the deckhands. The beautiful meeting place became a place of chaos. The plush carpets got dirty. Some of the exquisite furniture got scratched. So the property committee excuse me, immediately had a shower built outside the house where the victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before they came inside. At the next meeting, there was a rift in the membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities for they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal fellowship of the members. Other members insisted the life, uh, that the life-saving was their primary purpose and pointed out that that was why they were there in the first place. But they were finally voted down and told if they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who would be shipwrecked, they, be- they could begin their own life-saving station somewhere further down the coast. And you know what? That's what they did. As the years passed, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old one. It evolved into a place to meet regularly for fellowship, for committee meetings, for special training sessions about their mission, but few went out to drowning people. The drowning people were no longer welcomed in the new life-saving station. So another life-saving station was founded further down the coast. History continued to repeat itself. And if you visit the seacoast today, you'll find a number of adequate meeting places with ample parking, plus carpeting, 
Shipwrecks are frequent in those waters, but most of the people drown. Beginning in chapter 2, Paul gives Timothy, uh, the pastor, the lead pastor, if you will, at the church at Ephesus, Paul gives Timothy instructions for the church on how to pray and how to live so that the life-giving gospel will continue to go out to people. No doubt there was a concern for Paul that the false teaching, if you'll remember the two guys, Hymenaeus and Alexander, Paul was concerned that their teaching was turning the Ephesian church into what we might call an elitist social club that focused on other things than the gospel. Paul wants to remind the church and its leaders, its pastors, that the gospel is for everyone. If you were listening when Richard read verses 1-7, through if you were listening, you heard the words, prayers for all people, the desire for all people to be saved. Jesus gave Himself a ransom for all. And in verse 7, the gospel is for Gentiles and not just for Jews. Paul's passion here, I think, is is obvious. The gospel is for, anybody want to guess? Everyone. All. So if you're looking at your handout, you see the main idea. God's heart towards sinful humanity informs the way the church prays and how we minister to people or how we do ministry or what we should be doing in ministry within the church. God's heart... And that's going to become evident when we read this. God's heart towards sinful humanity informs the way we pray and how we minister or how we do ministry toward people. There should be prayers for all people to be reached with the gospel. And those prayers should saturate the life and the ministry of a church. We are the Seacoast Life-Saving Station in Franklin County. Looking at your handout, verses 1-2, through two, there's, it's simple here, a call to pray. Notice what Paul says. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul, if you'll remember, he had had left Timothy in Ephesus to set the church in order. That's Timothy's role. He's the pastor at the first church in Ephesus. He is there to put the church in order. And beginning in chapter 2, Paul outlines, don't miss this, Paul in chapter 2 begins outlining the specific duties that Timothy need to fulfill. As Paul begins to tell Timothy how to conduct oneself in the life of the church, if you remember, chapter 3, verse 15 tells us why Paul wrote this letter. So you'll know how to conduct yourselves in the household of God, within the, the church, within the people of God. So Paul begins to tell Timothy how to conduct themselves within the church. Chapter 2, verse 1, first of all. When you hear that statement, what do you think? This is the priority, Right? First of all, this is the priority, Timothy. I'm beginning to tell you, Timothy, why I've wrote, and here's what we need to be doing. But Paul's not just talking about the need for prayer in general. He's talking about the need for prayer as it relates to the salvation of lost people. 
First of all then, notice what he says, I urge. That word urge is, is an exhortation word. It means to come alongside someone, someone and motivate them. First of all then, I urge. Paul's telling Timothy, as I said earlier, the pastor of the first church in Ephesus, that the church must understand the importance of its mission to reach lost people and the role of prayer in fulfilling that mission. And you'll hear me say this probably again. In good old southern English, if they ain't no prayer, what happens? God's calling us. God will save people regardless of whether you and I pray or not, but do we want to get in on the mission? Do we want to be a part of that? God works through our prayers to save people. The mission of the church, the mission of Redbud Baptist Church is go make disciples. That's, that's our mission. And that mission will not succeed without prayer. It's not going to happen. Most people will say, well, God's going to do what He's going to do regardless of whether we pray or not. That is true. But there's no guarantee that you'll be a part of that. God's plan is going to prevail. It's going to succeed. His church will prevail, but will you, will you and I be a part of that? And that mission will not succeed without prayer. Prayer is dependence on God. You need to write that down. Prayer is dependence on God. See, when we pray, we're not twisting God's arm to get Him to do something that He doesn't want to do. A lot of times you've heard people say, if you just pray harder, what does that mean? I think it means if you spend more time in prayer showing your dependence on God, that's one thing. But you're not going to twist God's arm to get Him to do something. You're praying because you're utterly dependent upon God to do what He says He's going to do. Because you're the means by which He's going to do that. Prayer is dependence on God. Prayer is us saying, God, we can't do this on our own. You have to help us. How many of you ever prayed a prayer like that as a member of the church, knowing what God's called us to do? Have you ever prayed a prayer, God, we can't do this. You've got to help us. I, as your pastor, do it every day. I can't do this. God, you've got to help me. I cannot do this. We cannot fulfill this great call if you don't help us. Prayer is, or it should be, Paul says, the priority of the church. Prayer is the most important thing God's people do. What's the first thing Paul says in the instructions of Timothy to tell the people of God? Is it go build a building? What is it? Pray. This is my mission. This is my doing, but you're going to have to pray to me to work through you to get the job done. God is sovereign, and yet His sovereign plan includes the prayers of His people. If we're involved with God's plan for the world, then we will be praying in line with His plan. If God's plan is to save the world, then what should our prayers be involved? What should be involved in our prayers? What should be the greatest extent of our prayers? We can pray for the people we prayed for this morning, right? Heal them, God. Be the doctors. Do those things. But Paul says the first priority of the church is to what? Pray for God's help in doing this mission He's called us to. God's plan involves all kinds of prayers, he says, for all people. In verse 1, Paul, he'll use four different words for prayer. And the words are not altogether distinct in meaning, but they they are different shades of uh, difference that tells us the kind of prayer that's required. That's the purpose of these four different words. Notice there, we'll walk through these right quickly. Supplication. Some of you have a translation that uses the word petitions or entreaties. Supplication is prayer that comes from a sense of need to be without something. That's what that means. 
You're praying to God out of a sense of need. You're without something. It's prayer that arises from the sense of need. Our weakness and God's power. That's what that is. That's the need you have. God is strong. We are weak. Therefore, we need God, right? Knowing what is lacking, we plead to God, give us that, God. We don't have it. God, this is an enormous task you've called us to as the church to reach people. 62% of our county is lost without Jesus. God, you've got to help us. Now, let me ask you something. Do you think God is pleased with that kind of prayer? This is yes. If you're wondering, absolutely. Knowing is what's lacking. We plead with God to supply that. Our needs should move us to pray. Second, he uses the word prayers. It's a general term for prayer to God. The word here emphasizes the sacredness of prayer. It's an act of worship toward God. It's not just an expression of our wants and needs. Let me say that again for those of you who missed that. It's not just an expression of our wants and needs. That's what 99% of our prayers consist of. I want, I want, I need, I need. Intercessions and petitions, he says next, or or intercessions. Some translations use the word petitions here. Intercession means to to fall in with someone, to get involved with them. It pictures someone who can who can go into the presence of the king and talk freely with him on your behalf. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? We can go into the presence of God on the behalf of other people and talk to Him about those people. What is Paul telling us to do? Do that. Go into the presence of your King, your God, and talk with Him about people. In Romans chapter 8, verse 37, and Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, that word is used of the intercessory work of the Holy Spirit and Jesus on our behalf. I kind of caught my eye. Oh, that's the same word that the Holy Spirit uses to talk about how Jesus and the Spirit goes before us to God. It's also a word of sympathy and pity and compassion. And here's what I want to say. In light of the coming misery and judgment that's going to fall on sinners, we cry to God for them to come to Christ. You get to go before the King of the universe as a professing believer and call out to Him to save people from the judgment of God. Thanksgivings. This points to the fact that we can express not only our petitions, but our gratitude to God for His gracious answers to our prayers. That He will, in fact, save sinners. How many of you have prayed that way? God saved so-and-so, and and I'm going to thank you that you're going to do that. What are we praying most of the time? I know I should pray, but that poor old boy, he ain't got a chance. He's so far gone, God can't save him. You do that, right? It's our gratitude to God for His answers that He will in fact save people. It is thanks to God that He would even extend salvation to us. And that we Christians have the blessing of reaching the lost. You ever thank God for the fact that He, not only did He save you, but He put you in the life-saving business of reaching people with the gospel? You ever thank God for that? Most of the time we're wondering, how can we get away from this guy? 
and not even talk to him about Jesus. Look at verse 2. Well, notice, I'm sorry, that our prayers are to be, verse 1, for who? All people. God has commanded all men. Acts chapter 17, verse 30 says, God has commanded all men to repent. Not some, but He's commanded all to repent. Every human being that's ever lived, living or ever will live, God says they must repent. So Paul says you need to be praying for who? Everybody. So we must pray that they will come to Christ and receive salvation that's offered to them. If God calls everybody to repent, what should you and I be praying for? People to repent, right? Look at verse 2. Got ahead of myself there. It says, For kings and all who are in high positions. Paul here singles out prayers for those in positions of authority. Why just these and not others? We don't know, but he does. He singles out prayer for those in positions of authority. Now we would say, that's right. We need to pray for our leaders, right? By the way, we do that on Wednesday nights. We pray for our nation's leaders, our president, and other people. We pray for those. Did you hear what Paul said? Pray for those who are in high positions. Does anybody know who the emperor was during this time when Paul wrote these words? Nero. He was the cruelest maniac that ever lived in the Roman government. You know what he used to do? He used to take Christians and impale them. And if you young people don't know what that is, you ask your mom and daddy sometime later on what that means. He would impale them and cover them with pitch and set them on fire and put them in his garden to light his garden. And Paul says, do what for him? Pray for him. Paul doesn't call Christians to a political revolution, but what does he call us to do? Pray. Prayer is God's means for removing tyrants and establishing peace in this world. Thus the plan of God involves all kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. And I say that to say this. Christians today are tempted to look at our nation and our culture, and I've been guilty of this, and God's, you know, not physically, but in a spiritual sense, smacked me upside the head. He gave me the Gibbs slap. You know, you've seen that, right? Our country's going to what? Hell in a handbasket, going to pot. And we, we, and we feel more and more like we are a persecuted minority, right? Hollywood's going after us. The government's going after us. The media's going after us. The courts are going after us. They undermine the foundations of our nation. And the temptation is what? We get angry about that, right? And we shake our fists. And Paul is saying, here's what I want you to do towards those souls. I want you to do what? Pray. And some of us are going, you've got to be kidding me. Praying and begging and petitioning and supplicating to God that those people would come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. That means you've got to pray for your enemies, right? Here's the application. I think it's quite simple. We must pray for all people. What does all mean, church? Wake up. What, what does it mean? All. That's what it means, All. Does such prayer permeate our church? Does such prayer permeate your life? That you pray for all people, you're like, preacher, I got to work. Yeah. yeah. But what does, uh, 
what brain did. First Thessalonians 5.18, what does it tell us to do about prayer? Pray with what? Without ceasing, which means continuously. You're riding down the road, what? Use your time wisely. God give you that time, pray. When you're doing something, washing dishes, looking out the window, wondering if it's going to rain today, pray for people. There's all times that we have plenty of time to pray, right? There ought to be those isolated times when we get along with God and we're, we're, we're pursuing Him, yes, but our life should be that of prayer. Here, let me give you some practical ways to pray for all people. If you're looking at your handout, there's two of them on there. You're looking, right? And they're on there. Are they on there? Yes, okay, I just want to make sure. And everybody's awake, and they're looking, and yeah, they're on there. That first one is pray for your neighbors. If you'll go to this website and sign up, guess what these people will do? They'll send you an email every day with five people within a, I think it's a three-mile radius of where you live. They'll send you a list of five people every day to pray for. And, and don't wear it out. Some of them are people you already know, okay? Maybe you sit on the pew with them. Pray for them anyway. Because guess what? If they do it, your name's going to come up on theirs. And when you're done praying, you'll click a link and it'll go back to them and they'll say, He prayed for those today. Tomorrow you'll get another one. So far I've prayed through the list of people in our community within a three-mile radius about eight or nine times, I think. I don't know how long it took, but every day. This Now, do I get it every day? Some days I miss it. And I catch it the next day. But praying for neighbors. Notice the next one there. It's praying for... Uh, unreached people groups. You can go to that website and sign up and they'll send you a people group to pray for every day. You'll get an email that says praying for an unreached people group and guess what? They'll even tell you how to pray for them. You don't have to figure that out. They'll tell you what to pray. That's good, isn't it? You're like, well, I don't know what to pray. That's not an excuse. They'll tell you what to pray. And, and listen, I'm going to tell you. You're not going to be able to pronounce 75% of the names of those people groups, Right? Southern people, we just can't pronounce anything. If it, ain't, if it ain't Bob or Joe or Jim, we just can't do it. I look at them names and go, I, do, I give it my best, and God knows what I'm trying to say. And they'll tell you how to pray for those people. Teach your children to pray. Tell your children, we have people in our family who are lost, and tell them that we need to pray for them. Pray for them over a meal at night. Uh, ask them, do you have any people in your, in your class that's you, we, should, we can pray for. Maybe they don't go to church. Let's pray for them. Here's another one. Bring them the RAs and GAs and mission friends on Wednesday nights to learn about reaching and praying for lost people. Man, that'd be a great idea. There's some people up there who'll sit with your kids and teach them about missions, teach them about people who are doing missions, and they'll teach your kids how to pray and what it means to pray for lost people. Pray for leaders. Local, state, and national. Some of, most of us, are, we don't even know who our county commissioners are. We don't know who the mayor of Lewisburg is, right? Anybody know? Purnell. Yeah. If you don't know him, you can't pray for him, right? So that'll be something we know. We'll be praying for those people. Let me say this. We shouldn't need another 9-11 to move us to pray. Everybody remember that? Man, people came to church. Good Lord, they came to church and they was, man, they were coming to pray for months and all of a sudden what happened? Everybody forgets. 
We don't need another 9-11 to move us to pray. And I'm going to say this, and this may be the last time I bring it up, or it might not. But Wednesday nights is a perfect time for you to show up and pray. I don't want to put a guilt trip on you, but that is a time we, God has given us, we come together corporately and we pray. We pray for people of everything in the world. Sickness, cancer, you name it. We pray for lost people. We pray for church plans. We pray for missionaries. It's a time when God, God has given us and we come together and pray. And yes, for about 15 minutes, I'll read some. Uh, we're reading through the Bible right now. It's kind of slow, but that's fine. We're, we're working our way through the Bible. I'll read through a couple of chapters. i give an overview of that and some uh, points that we pull out of there. In about 15 minutes, we do that. And then we pray for the rest of the 30, 35 minutes. Sometimes 40, depending on how God moves us to pray. And we pray through a list and we pray for people. That would be a perfect way for you to get involved in the corporate prayer life of the church. And here's what I want to say. Prayer is important. And we as a church, church in general, but us as a church, we've taken that lightly. We kind of think, it ain't, it ain't a big deal. You know, I, I think when I, we started doing this a couple of years ago, I made mention to someone not in this church, but in, in a conversation, that that's what we were going to do. And they said, you mean that's all you're going to do is pray? And I said, that comment is exactly the reason we need to do that. It's because you don't think it's important to gather and pray. Verse 2, Paul gives the benefit of prayer that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Praying for our leaders that Paul just mentioned here promotes peace. It brings about conditions favorable for the church to, to do its evangelism efforts. It enables the church to flourish. Let me say this. I want to clarify something. The purpose that he's making here, the point he's making here is it's not for such a such that our life would be comfortable and happy. That's not what he's talking about. But so that we can grow in godliness and dignity. That's what he says. With a view toward the greater spread of the gospel. Godliness there has the idea of reverence toward God. Living for the glory of God. Dignity refers to proper behavior. To be marked by a commitment to morality or holy living. Paul's concerned here with the testimony of God's people. So the idea is that we should pray for political peace so that we can live in observable godliness so that lost people will be saved. It's not for your benefit. It's for the benefit of lost people that we pray that that would happen. Here's what I want to say. It's not that the gospel can't spread amid persecution because if you read church history, the gospel flourishes when the church is being persecuted. It it goes crazy. It goes forward. But that happens. However, in times of peace, Christians in the church can freely live out a call of Jesus and live the life of Jesus for all to see. At this time in America, notice what I said. At this time, we have the freedom and privilege of living out the gospel freely among those around us. At this time, we have that. Which leads me to a point of application here. Talking about praying. How about those Christians who live in places like Egypt and Saudi Arabia and North Korea and Iraq where peace is non-existent? Pray that peace would prevail so the gospel can be proclaimed in those areas. 
When you get that list of unreached people group to pray for every day, you read it carefully, you'll go, my goodness, how these people live in this environment. How do missionaries get the gospel to advance? How, how does God do this in the midst of these, this chaos that goes on in these countries? Praying that God would allow peace to come in those people's lives and the gospel would be able to advance. Verses 3 through 6. God's attitude toward a fallen world. In verses 3 and 4, we have the motivation behind our prayers. First three words is what? This is good. And it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This points back to the commandment to pray for all people in verses 1 and 2. Praying for all people is what? Good. That word good means beautiful or pleasant. And it's pleasing. It means That word means to receive gladly. And, and then notice desire in verse 4. This is good and it's pleasing in the sight of God to do that. How many of you want to please God? Yeah? Right, here's a way to do that. Verses 1 through 2. God's desire is for the salvation of who? All men. God told the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel in chapter 33, verse 11, says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. What is God saying? I take no pleasure in people rejecting me and dying and going to hell, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and what? Live. When Christians pray, it's good and it's pleasing to God. When when Christians pray for uh, those in positions of authority so that there's peace, it allows the gospel to be preached and men to be saved. Which is good and pleasing in the sight of God who desires the salvation of all people. If God's desiring the salvation of all people and this is a way for that to happen, then what are you and I to be doing? We're to be praying these things. When the God, God desires all people to be saved... Look in verse 3. When God desires all people to be saved, He's been consistent with who He is. Who does it say God is? He's God and what? Savior. God is Savior. Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22 says, Turn to me. This is God. Turn to me and be saved. All ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. You want to be saved? You need to be saved? You go to God through His means and His plans. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. God's going to save thousands and millions of people. He's going to fulfill His promise to save people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. But God is patient toward you. Some of you sitting here today, lost of that Jesus, God is being very patient toward you. Not wishing that you should perish, but that you should come to Him. God's being patient with you. Now I want to clarify something. This does not mean that all will be saved. Okay? God desires all people to be saved, but not all people are going to be saved. Some, some view this as universalism. The idea that all people are going to be saved. 
this error believes that because God desires all people to be saved, and God always gets what He desires, then all people are going to be saved. That is for sure not what this text or what the Bible as a whole teaches. Because Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is clear. That we're only saved by grace through faith in Jesus. And only those who repent and trust in Jesus for salvation receive eternal life. Not everyone's going to be saved. Still some will say that if God desires that all people be saved and not all are saved, then God is not in control of all things. The entirety of the Bible is clear that God is sovereign over how many things? All things. Past, present, and what's coming. Job said in Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. That would be a good verse to put to memory. Job 42 verse 2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Again, Ezekiel chapter 18 verse 23, God speaking to Ezekiel says, I the Lord your God do not delight in the death of the wicked. But I delight when sinners turn from their wicked way and come to me. What does God delight in? People coming to Him. What is Paul saying we need to do? We need to pray for that. That's exactly what he's saying here. Paul's telling us something about the delight of the heart of God. That He doesn't delight in the destruction of wicked. He's not some monster in the sky that loves to see people ruining their lives and going to hell. Although He will punish the wicked. But His real delight is when sinners are saved. We want what God wants, right? We want sinners to come to Him. And part of our being a part of that is to pray. His delight is to save sinners. Do we believe that? Do you believe that God delights to see sinners saved? That's, a, that's a rhetorical question, but you need to be asking yourself, do I delight to see sinners saved? Here's what Paul's saying. That truth should drive you to pray that that would be the case. Because God has this desire to see the world come to Christ. We pray for the world to come to God, to know Him. Here's the application. It's quite simple. Because God desires the salvation of all people, we, Christians, the church, should, we must pray for the salvation of all people. That's, that's simple. Application. Pray that all will be reached with the gospel is in line with what God desires. We must know and take on God's attitude toward the world. What is God's attitude toward the world? He desires what? That everybody come to Him. What is our desire toward the world? Are we praying for God's desire? When you pray for lost family members, friends, neighbors, co-workers, classmates, yes, your enemies, people groups who are hostile to the gospel, Muslims. We're praying knowing that God loves them and He desires their salvation. And our prayers are the means with which God will work to save. I know that's hard for us to get our mind around, but God works through your prayers to save people. So here's my question for you. Do you pray for lost people? Verse 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave Himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Why should we pray for all people? Because for there is one God 
There is one Savior and one mediator, and His name is what? Christ Jesus. And He is the one and only hope for all humanity. That's why you pray. Paul is moved by the Spirit of God. He's commanded by God. Remember in chapter 1, verse 1? Inspired by the Spirit of God and commanded by God says that there are not many ways to God. We're taught today by our culture that there are many gods. Can I tell you something? you got small children, you better look out. They're going to come home one day and they're going to tell you. They said there were a lot of ways to get to heaven. There's a lot of ways to God. This is one way to God. They're taught there's a Muslim God, and there's a Buddhist God, and there's a Hindu God, and there's a Christian God. And all are valid ways to salvation. You just wait. They will come home one day. And that will be what they tell you. Paul says that there are not many ways to God, he says here. He says that all religions are not the same. In fact, he's saying just the opposite. Paul says there's only one God. And he also says there's one mediator. That word mediators, I love this word. It refers to one who intervenes between two individuals to restore peace. Let me say that again. It refers to one who intervenes between two individuals to restore peace. Who do you think Jesus is intervening for? Me and you between God to restore peace. Jesus is the one who restores peace. The man, Christ Jesus. By command of God, again, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says there's only one way of salvation, one hope, and that hope is Jesus. Because Jesus is the only mediator, all must come to God through Him. All must come to God through Him. And I've had people tell me, Jesus didn't believe that. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. In order for God to be reconciled to sinful man, in order to restore peace between God and man, a man had to pay for his sin. And it was the man, Christ, Jesus. By calling Jesus a man here, Paul's not denying that Jesus is God. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And you're going, I heard that all my life, and I just can't get my mind wrapped around that. Well, join the club. That's one of those things we take by faith. God says that's the way it is, and that's what we believe. The price price to restore peace is death, because the wages of sin is death. But God provided a, a representative, a representative man to be the substitute for all other men through His death. Jesus' death was for sinners. His death was for you in your place. His death was not to show you how to live a sacrificial life. I've talked with people and they say, Jesus was a good man. He sacrificed Himself for others, and that's an example for us to follow. Maybe there's a principle there that we should live sacrificial lives, but that's not what Jesus' death was for. His death was in your place to atone for your sins. Verse 6 says that Jesus, the God-man, became what? A ransom for who? All. Ransom refers to a price being paid in order to set people free. Ransom. A price had to be paid to set you free. Jesus, it says, gave Himself. He became the one who paid the price to release us from God's judgment for our sin. 
But here's what I want to tell you. This ransom is only sufficient for all who receive it. It's only for those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ. That's the only way to peace with God. No one, no one sitting here today can come to God the Father except through Jesus. There is no other way. Anyone today sitting here who will come to Jesus, God will pardon through His grace in Christ. He will forgive you. Some of you here today need to do just that. And that being the case, if you are saved, if you've been ransomed by Jesus, if you have peace with God, if you have hope in Jesus, if you don't pray for the world, what hope does the world have? Think about that. What hope does our world have if we don't pray for them to come to Christ? Because there is no hope, Paul says, apart from Jesus, who has saved us from our own sins. Therefore, we the church must pray for the world. Here's some application. Christian, in particular, us, Redbud, must know and take on God's attitude toward the world. we got to know what God's attitude is, and Paul tells us what it is, and we got to take on that attitude. Paul is saying that God's heart and His attitude is that He delights to see sinners saved. That ought to be our heart. It ought to, it ought to move us as a church to pray for the lost. It ought to make us want to pray that the nations, all people, even our enemies, would come to know Jesus. We all got enemies, right? We got some people we don't particularly like, right? Some more than others. But honestly, ask yourself the question, how many of those people that you dislike, some you really dislike, how many of you how many of them do you want to die and go to hell? I didn't think we'd have any hands raised. I sure hope not. Verse seven. If we pray for all people, then we preach the gospel to all people. Notice what they outline. The church's ministry is to preach the gospel to a fallen world. That is our ministry. That's the only ministry we have. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, I understand that Paul is specifically talking about his own role here as an apostle. But all that he says applies to every follower of Jesus. And what does Paul say he is? I was appointed a preacher. The words for this refers to those truths that we just talked about in verses 3 and 6. The truth that God is our Savior, Jesus is our mediator, and Jesus gave himself as a ransom. And Paul says he was appointed, so therefore every believer is appointed to be a preacher. Not the one who gets behind the pulpit on Sunday morning, preacher. Appointed means you're given an assignment, and that assignment was to proclaim... To publicly proclaim the gospel. So you can go home today and you can tell that our pastor, our preacher said, we are all preachers. If we know Jesus, you're a preacher. You're to be proclaiming the gospel. But what about when Paul says he's an apostle? Well, apostle just stresses uh, the authority that he was sent out by God. We're not apostles, but we are called as those sent out. And notice there, apparently, some of them there were challenging Paul's authority. So he says, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. Notice there, he says he's a teacher as well. It points to Paul's role as as one who explained God's message so that people could understand and apply it. And by the way, pastors are to be both preachers 
They proclaim Jesus, the gospel, and they teach in order that people understand and apply the gospel that they proclaim. So a preacher is not just a preacher, he's a teacher. He's supposed to teach you what the Bible says, he's to proclaim Jesus, and he's to teach you how to understand the gospel and how to apply that to your life. Paul says that he's a preacher and a teacher, notice here, to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Faith and truth refers to the, the character of the one proclaiming and teaching. They preach the truth of the gospel and they, and they do it with faith. They do so with conviction. When you proclaim the gospel, there ought to be conviction in what you're telling people that this is the gospel truth. This is the truth that you need to hear. And notice to whom Paul was a preacher and a teacher. Verse 7. Who's he a preacher and a teacher to? The Gentiles. Now, most, if not all of you sitting here today, are Gentiles. There's two people in the Bible, Jew, Gentile. If you're not a Jewish person, it doesn't matter what you are in the Old Testament, an Ammonite, a Moabite, any of them ites, you're a Gentile. Jew and Gentile. And you wouldn't be here today had not God in His wisdom appointed Paul to take this message not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. You wouldn't be sitting here today if God hadn't said, Paul, go to the Gentiles. The word Gentile here points us to the world. It points us to the nations, all people groups, because God desires the world to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. We desire that the world would come to Christ. And here's what I want to tell you. God's method for reaching people is people. It's God's people. The church. Every person who has experienced the saving grace of God in Christ, you are God's plan for reaching other people. Our only purpose as a church is to reach lost people, baptize them, and then teach them to follow Jesus. Our purpose is to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who see the church as a life-saving station. And according to verse 1, the church, us, has a global life-saving mission. And according to verse 1, we are to pray for all people. And according to verse 7, we're to proclaim the gospel to all people. So what are we to be doing as a church? Praying and proclaiming. Now here's what I have, question I have for you. Do you have God's desire as a Christian, as a member of this church, as your desire for being a part of this congregation? Does your desire match God's desire? And here's what I want to say. Becoming a member of the church is extremely important. And I don't think that's the first time I've ever said that, right? We don't join the church just to get our name on the roll. We join the church to what? Become a part of the life-saving mission to bring the nations to God. God's plan is to build His church by the prayers and the preaching of His people. That's the only means God has established. Your prayers and you proclaiming the gospel. Now here's my application question for you. Is that your plan? Is that your plan as a Christian? Is that your plan as a mission, excuse me, as a member of this church? Is that your plan? When you say, I want to become a member of the church, does that enter your mind that when I say I want to become a member, I'm signing up to be a part of the mission of praying and proclaiming the gospel? Four words for you. What do you see? Does anybody remember those words? When did you hear those words? By Sunday, right? What do you see?
There was something else that was said in there, maybe in different words, but something of the fact, let's not pursue our own interests while people nearby are drowning. What do you see? There's people drowning all around us. Not literally, but figuratively. People are drowning. 62% of our, our county is unchurched or lost. And Paul says the mission to reach them begins with what? What is it, church? Where do we begin? We begin by what? Pray. We, we can't do this without God's help. It can't be done. Luke 10, verse 2, which we pray every Wednesday night, says what? Pray to me, the Lord of the harvest, that I will do what? Raise up labors. And why does He want us to pray to Him to raise up labors? Because the harvest is what? Plentiful. Thousands and millions of people are going to come to Jesus, so we need to pray to God to what? Raise up people who will do what? Pray and proclaim the gospel to them. We can't do this, church, without God's help. Prayers us acknowledge to God that we need your help. Prayers us saying that we're utterly dependent upon God. Here's some things. This is an application you can pray for. You can pray for me. That God would save the lost under my feeble attempts to preach the gospel. You can pray for that. You can pray for yourself that God would use you to lead lost sinners to the Savior. And don't be content until He answers your prayers. Pray for your neighbors. Pray for your kids' friends who are lost. Pray for your family members. Pray for people in this community. Pray for our nation that God would save many. And here's what I want to say. I love my country. I signed up, volunteered to fight to defend freedom. But our military and our government is not going to save our country. The gospel is the only thing that will save lostness. Pray for our missionaries that God would give them fruit in their labors. Pray for people groups around the world, especially those who are in places of war and famine, for those who are there to hear the gospel. Where there's little Christian witness that God would be pleased to save multitudes for His glory. You know, you and I gather every week. We sit on these pews and we take for granted, don't we? We take for granted that we can come every week, we can read our Bibles every day, and we can pray every day, whether we do or not, and we can come to church freely and sit in a nice place and be comfortable, and there are people in the world who can't even utter the name of Jesus. And if they do, someone will take their life. They're terrified. And there are people living in places where the gospel is not there yet. Paul's first instruction to the church was to do what? Say it with me. Pray. Pray and then proclaim. Don't go talk to men about God until you go talk to God about men. Let's pray.